0: Hello, everyone. And uh, welcome to our listeners. Welcome to our viewers uh, to another episode of The Edge. Um, Today, we have Dana Miro on um, as a special guest. I'm quite excited to talk to him. I know that, John, you've got some background in the past and you know him, I guess, pretty well, but I don't. Um, So I guess for my for my benefit and for our listeners benefit, if you can kind of tell us a little bit about kind of how did your journey start? How did you get into IT? How did that involve into security? And then we'll kind of dig a little bit deeper into the world of SSE.
1: Absolutely, thanks, uh, Jay, and uh, nice to uh, talk to all of you. Thanks for having me on uh, the podcast. Um, yeah, just to give you a little bit of background on me, uh, my current role. I am a solutions engineer, uh, selling SSE and kind of doing, um, you know, kind of educating people on what SSE is and why it's important, why people should be considering it now at this point, and given with the, you know, the cloud adoption and kind of where everything sits today, threat landscape, things like that. Um, Yeah, so I uh, I started getting into IT I would say really early on in my life. Um, I've actually only I the only thing I really know is computers. I would say Uh, when I was nine years old, uh, I got uh, access to a computer for the very first time. My grandmother had a a computer at her house. Um, This was a long time ago, and uh, I was you know I was into video games as a kid. You know what kid isn't right? Um, And I, I saw that you could play video games on a floppy disk on. The PC, and I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. Um, so I was immediately hooked on it, right? Thinking of it as like a glorified uh, Nintendo console sort of thing. Um, and then I uh, I made a mistake on the computer, not knowing what I was doing as a little kid. I was fumbling around with it, and I deleted some sort of shortcut on the desktop. And uh, my cousin uh, came back and was like, "Hey, um, uh, the, this shortcut's missing. Like you you broke the computer." And I was like freaking out, like, "Oh my gosh! Like, <laughs> what did I do here?" Right. Um, so I started, you know, uh, I had a tons of idle time. This was like Thanksgiving time uh, at my grandmother's house. So um, I was playing around with it and I was opening up. Uh, this is the Windows 3.11 era, so a while back, right? Um, uh, I go into file manager and I'm trying to find the icon. I figured out a way to kind of bring it back and get it working again. And from there on, I was like, wow, like this was that was kind of cool. Like fixing the I fixed the computer, uh, this thing. And it, and it was very clear to me that this was more than just like a video game console. Like clearly my grandmother had it for a reason. She's not a video gamer, right? So, <laughs> um, so from then on, I kind of was like, you know, uh, pivoted away, uh, not completely away, but just more so away from like the idea of video gaming and kind of getting into computers. So, um, from there, I, you know, I asked my dad, to said, Hey, you know, I really want to uh, get a computer. Um, and we didn't have a lot of money back then. So, uh, my dad was like, you know, uh, found a used computer for us to kind of get, and, you know, with a used computer, right. You tend to get a slower computer. So, uh, what do you do when you get a slower computer and, and, as uh, you upgrade it. Right. So, um, so we started to kind of, you know, put parts in it and upgrade it and kind of make it better. And I just was like hooked from then on. Um, so, you know, growing up as a, as a kid, it was like, okay, now what What else can this computer do beyond just playing video games, right? So um, got into, like, uh, writing programs at, at, like, 13 years old using Visual Basic 3.0, um, started working with, like, Photoshop, just trying to figure out what I liked about the computer beyond the video game aspect, like, what was really, like, interesting to me. Um, and I And I think it was really, I never really found anything beyond the repairing... And the upgrading of it that was like interesting to me so um when i got out you know into the workforce this was high school you know kind of time frame i wanted to do that for a living i knew right away like this is what i want to do um so i i you know took that knowledge and that history that i had and i got my first job doing a computer repair for, for a, a retailer um not kind of like a like a best buy sort of thing right um and, you know, I got better at that. And then I kind of got like tired of doing that. I just was like, okay, what's the next thing, right? And then people were explaining to me, oh, servers, like servers are really important to businesses. And they're like computers, there's faster computers, right? That, you know, got into servers. And then it was one of those things that servers were neat. And now virtualization was starting to take over. That's when VMware was starting to have their heyday, right? And um, that was becoming a thing. And I was like, wow, you could take multiple computers and put it into one and actually like make it more, you know, make better resource uh, usefulness right out of this computer. And that was interesting to me. So I followed the VMware track and, um, and while I was working for, I ended up working for a company doing like server maintenance and stuff like that eventually. And uh, VMware was part of that. And I ran into some network engineers um, who were a part of this company and watching them whiteboard network drawing drawings and diagrams was like, The coolest thing to me, it was like, you know, drawing a puzzle and like, how do we figure this out? How do we figure out the the routing and the networking and all that stuff? So I I was like, that's that's interesting. That's really cool. So uh, I went to a community college to go get uh, to just take some basic like Cisco networking classes to kind of see, you know, was that uh, something that uh, I would be into? And I was right away. I was like, I was like, this is this is the direction I want to go in my life. I want to become a network person, network engineer. started going in that direction. Got a job as a network person, network engineer, managing it and managing infrastructure for a a medical device manufacturer. And um, as part of that, right? You're working with a network, you've got all these components that are, you know, you're passing this network traffic through. And they're like, hey, we've got these uh, firewalls. Um, They're part of the network and we need you to help. We need you to install them and get them routing and working. So I got exposure to a firewall for the first time um, and I was like, oh, this is you know, this is kind of neat. It's a network device, but it also does more than that, right? It, it uh, controls access, it allows, it blocks, all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, then the next-gen firewall kind of movement was starting to take off at that point in time. And I got access to the new shiny next-gen firewall that they gave us and said, hey, we, we're going to replace the old firewall with this next-gen firewall. Uh, go ahead and put it in. And uh, I did, and I saw what it could do from a capability visibility perspectives being able to see all the traffic that's actually happening before you really didn't know what was actually happening in your network it was really hard to tell um now you could actually see that so it was like wow as a network engineer getting that visibility into what's happening right that's you know and then you realize oh my gosh these security issues with that right you're seeing all this stuff that you didn't allow, mean to allow that's actually being allowed and actually happening on your network so you can't unsee that you know once you start to see uh all these challenges uh, and all this, you know, data passing through your network that you didn't really intend for. So that's kind of was kind of my journey into sort of security is, is getting into the firewall side and then and then realizing that there's a big problem on our hands and that we need to address it. So I kind of moved away slowly from the just the network centric world and kind of moved into the firewall world um, and then uh, eventually, you know, saw the need for a solution like SSE and kind of the, the data was moving away from uh, just on premise, right within a firewall, and now it's your 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 perimeter is really everywhere, and you have to kind of have controls and and protections around all of that. So that's kind of what what made me realize that the firewall is just not enough nowadays. Uh, it used to be, and now that everything's moving all over the place, it's uh, you have to have comprehensive control everywhere. So
2: so, so let's dive back a little bit because um, you and I met and commiserated many times over. Firewalls. <laughs> uh, truth be told, Dana was a, a, an SE for um, our firewall vendor, and um, he would walk in, and and we'd uh, unload a raft of problems on him, and uh, he'd go out and fix it. And you know, uh, it, it, we, it it was fun, and and we we enjoyed that that experience. He was he was one of the better SEs that we had on our account. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, you know what things changed. So uh, you know. Uh, cloud has entered the conversation, obviously, and that shifted applications outside of the four walls of of the data center and, and the corporate America, uh, corporate world, really. I, I, Jay, I'm I'm not going to try to leave you guys out of this conversation, uh, but um, you know, then we had obviously what happened in 2020. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the role of the of the firewall going forward. Um, how do you see that uh, playing out? Uh, is there a need for, you know, the the massive corporate firewalls of the of the past, um, or are we entering into a different world?
1: Uh, I would say we, we are entering into a different world. I think that the idea before, uh, again, when I was managing firewalls was, hey, we everything's on-prem, all of our data centers are, you know, where our data is, is located, and this is the safe Guard, You know, this is what we need to be protecting right so they would uh, basically pass as much data through a firewall as possible in order to get that visibility and inspection that I was talking about earlier right is being able to see what's happening and being able to control it. Um, And their ultimate goal right was to, uh, of course, obviously keep the lights on keep the business running but secondarily right is is to make sure that um, everything's secure and that our data is not ending up in the wrong hands right. Um, So the idea was, hey, let's invest a lot of money in these very, very large next-gen firewalls. Let's bring as much traffic in the data center through it as possible so that we can control um, everything going between a user on-premise to the internet, everybody coming, you know, working from uh, home, connecting into the data center for um, access to those systems. Um, You know, typically uh, with a VPN solution, people would, you know, you know, work out of a coffee shop, right? And they'd connect back into the data center and that all of their internet traffic would go into this data center and go through those big firewalls in order to, um, you know, reach uh, websites, applications, things like that. And and now that uh, data is everywhere, now that people are working from home, uh, now that COVID happened, right? And there's this hybrid remote work strategy, um, that solution doesn't really work too well anymore. Um, so what you're starting to see now is, is um, uh, people working from everywhere, trying to connect from everywhere, and the concessions that people have had to make is, um, you know, having to split off that traffic uh, and go directly to these cloud applications, directly to these destinations. Because, um, you know, if I'm working remotely and I'm hiring a bunch of people inside of, uh, you know, like let's say Paris, I'm here in Portland, near Portland, Oregon. If I'm in Paris and I'm connecting all the way into Portland to send my traffic out to the internet, that user experience is terrible. It's just not good. It's not going to work. Right. And that's what people are starting to run into. So um, that's where kind of really SSE comes into play and, and offers that uh distributed kind of cloud security model. That's it's global. Right. And the and with SSE adoption as, as people are starting to embrace that, we're reducing our reliance on the uh large firewalls that are in the data center because our data is not just in the data center, right? It's inside of cloud, it's inside of SaaS applications, um, it's everywhere. Right. So um the data center is not necessarily the place where all the crown jewels are. So because of that, you don't need that very, very large firewall um, necessarily because you're not sending uh, all your traffic in the data center. You're sending definitely data center traffic, right? It's still, you know, going through that firewall, but um, other traffic like user traffic, things like that with an SSC solution doesn't have to go through the data center unless you're accessing data center assets.
0: So I want to, I just want to ask a slightly different question before we, we kind of go back to the technical stuff because I've certainly spoken to a lot of people over the last couple of months and there's a lot of people uh, in the industry that are kind of a little bit resistant to change, a little bit resistant to taking away their old firewalls or removing their firewalls and taking away the, the networks. And, and having heard your story and heard kind of where you started and and how you kind of took a path, I think it's similar to what me and John did. Do you think the fact that we grew up in the industry and we saw the industry change and we saw things like VMware come along and we were like, okay, that's exciting. Then we saw something else come along and we thought, that's exciting. That that enabled us to be a bit more open to change versus if you just have only ever done one thing. And I know we slightly digress, but you obviously speak to a lot of people as well. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you come across the kind of people that don't want to move. Do you think that because we grew up with it made it easier? I
1: think so. Yeah, I think that um, it's funny. I took note on the on that question ahead of time and, and whatever it was open mindedness. Right. Because um, that's the challenge I do see when I talk to engineers today. Firewall engineers is they're very um, yeah, just like you said. Right. They're very uh, not they're hesitant to listen. They're hesitant to kind of try to understand this sort of thing. They think that they're you're taking their job away, you know, all these different reasons and, and fears. I think that yeah, I think that you're right. I think that um, us seeing some of this uh, technological advancement and what it's done for our jobs, what it's done for our companies, what it's done for uh, you know a lot of things. I think when we see those advancements and how that's helped us, I think that we are receptive to change and we're receptive to um, you know solutions making things better and addressing modern modern issues. Right? Yeah, Yeah. hundred percent.
0: I mean, you've obviously gone from being obviously a very good firewall engineer, and now you've kind of almost totally I wouldn't say thrown that away because SSE is similar the concept similar but you've kind of embraced it wholeheartedly um, but anyway John sorry I know we'd agress. I, no, I, I was now. gonna
2: I was gonna I was gonna double click on that and and just ask what what made you pivot because um you know you, you, you had success in the firewall industry and then um you know you yeah. obviously made a leap
1: Yeah. And it's funny, uh, Jay, you mentioned throwing it away. I actually do say that to my customers. I say I took 10 years of knowledge of next-gen firewall and and I threw it away. That's that's kind of what I say. Because a lot of it, I mean, fundamentally, right, when we're talking about access controls and stuff like that, a lot of that is sort of similar. It takes, uh, you know, kind of this general structure from a firewall. So there's part of that that I'm definitely keeping still. Understanding a network is still really important to Uh, facilitating an ssc type of solution so i think in those respects it's it's definitely um i'm still taking that knowledge but a lot of it i am i'm kind of moved away and i think the reason for me was uh, recognizing that uh i'm really not seeing where uh, my data movement anymore right if i if i look at a firewall today on in a data center i can see everything going from the server to the internet i can see everything going from a server to another server that sort of thing if it's set up properly right but you know uh i've got a lot of my data in aws today let's say right and i've got my data in gcp and i've got my stuff in azure and i've got my stuff in uh dropbox and OneDrive, and all of these different cloud applications um you know if i've got a if i've got a if i'm working from home if i'm just an average user i'm not a firewall person for a second I, and i and i've got my company issued you know OneDrive open and i take data from that and i exfiltrate it to another cloud solution right I'm not going to see that as a firewall engineer. I'm not even going to know that it happened um, because the firewall doesn't uh, that traffic's not coming into the data center. That traffic is not um, being inspected by uh, that. So it, it's, you know I was losing visibility every single day and I could see it. and you know there needs to be a more modern solution that can provide me again that visibility. And first first thing is always visibility, right? You need to be able to see what the problem is before you can control it. Um, and, and every day I could see myself losing that visibility to these other solutions as cloud was kind of taking over, SaaS was taking over, right? And and I knew that um, there needed to be a solution that could address that and that I could get that visibility again of what's happening between a user and anything where my data would be located, any, any system, any cloud.
0: I, I think you raised something really critical then because during your introduction, you said that. You gained all that visibility. You could see yeah. those threats. You you could look into that and that kind of open your eyes. And I, you you also said about throwing away ten years of knowledge. But actually, if you didn't have that knowledge, you didn't know about that visibility. You hadn't seen yes. it. You wouldn't know you were losing it. So the fact that you've gone through that journey and gone couldn't see what was going on on the network, put firewalls in place, suddenly had visibility. Oh, now we're losing it. I want to get it back. Okay, how am I going to get it back? Okay, by moving to this new kind of technology. Um, but John, over to you for your next question.
2: Yeah. So let's um let's break down the uh, some of these, you know, we've talked about SASE, we've talked about SSE. Um can you kind of define that um SASE SSE and and do it in a way that a, a firewall engineer, a firewall security engineer uh, might understand?
1: Yeah. Um so I mean, if, if we talk about what SSE is like by the Gartner term, right? Gartner created the term SSE, right? Which is a uh, convergence of uh, CASB, ZTNA, and Secure Web Gateway, right? If I'm a firewall person and I'm talking to somebody about Secure Web Gateway, right? Oftentimes on these next-gen firewalls, they have licensing for uh, the ability to filter URLs, right? The ability to filter websites, uh, the ability to do threat inspection on... Uh, site access, right? So if I'm going to some malicious website and I'm pulling down some malware, I want to be able to stop that, right? If uh, I'm, I want to stop my employees from accessing websites that they're not supposed to be accessing, right? So firewalls were able to do that traditionally. So um, with SSE, we're still taking, we still have that control. Uh, we're just abstracting that away from a, a firewall and moving that into the cloud, right? Um, so the cloud is where, you know, that sort of thing's managed now. And then, you know, what we what we also have done with uh, firewalls inside of an on-prem environment is we've used them for VPN uh, connectivity, right, concentration, right? And, and the purpose of that, of course, is to allow a user to access a, uh, like, a resource inside of a data center, right, inside of a trusted kind of environment, right? Um, also, uh, you know, VPNs were also used for, again, what I was mentioning earlier, which is secure internet, you know, protection, because the idea was that you had to, have a VPN, connect back in the data center where all of your again, big firewalls, big security controls, all that was that was all located there. And then get it inspected before it goes out to the internet, right? So that was um uh, you know, that's that's what firewalls kind of do did today and did in the past. Um, and now moving that sort of thing into into the cloud is is sort of where where things are going. And the reason for that. Is again because of the distributed work environment. Um, everybody's starting to kind of work from everywhere. The VPN model sort of doesn't um, doesn't really scale the way that companies are needing it to scale nowadays. So you need kind of that global uh, footprint where you know if I if I take my system and I leave from you know here in Portland and I go again to like I go to Paris, I take my laptop open and I want to do some work out there while I'm on vacation or something like that, right? I can't connect back into Portland to just get internet access or VPN access, right? I need to be able to connect somewhere close by so that way I can get that same, you know, control and inspection. Um, And that's really where SSC kind of shines, right? Is I can be connected from located in Paris to a point of presence in Paris that does all that same inspection that a firewall would do, Um, but, you know, everywhere in the world, right? Having that, having that control. So just taking that those traditional firewall controls away from an on-premise firewall box and moving that sort of thing into the cloud. So it's really that. Then also taking the um, the CASB piece, which is the cloud access security broker. A lot of people don't know what that is. When I explain, you know, what is a CASB, they don't really, they know what it stands for, they know the acronym, but they don't actually know what it, what it is. And, and the idea with that is, you know, Secure Web Gateway was really important a long time ago when the world was just a web world um but now as we've you know kind of adopted saas adopted cloud uh, the world doesn't really communicate in a in a in a web way right where you just everything's just url based right um there's a lot of apis there's a lot of json calls that are happening between the user and these cloud applications so being able to control those calls that are being made and understand them interpret them to again provide visibility into how your users are interacting with cloud applications how to control uh, that that access in line, right? So if I'm doing an upload into a OneDrive or a Dropbox or something like that, I want to be able to see that that's happening. I want to be able to control it. I want to be able to understand what OneDrive instance, what Dropbox instance, because that, that definitely matters, right? The difference between maybe your OneDrive instance and a a uh, ransomware operator's OneDrive instance, right? So yeah.
0: All right, so I have a question about SSC and the journey. Um, because I get asked this all the time and I've got an answer and John's got an answer, like where'd you start your SSE journey? I, I very much see SSE is kind of sitting on top of this strategy of zero trust, right? It's users to applications, wherever the applications may be. But where would you suggest that people start their journey? What what would be the, the part of the kind of architecture that they should start with first and and why? Yeah, it's
1: a good question. Um, you know, I, I get I get asked that sometimes. Um, I also have customers and that I talk to that they, um, depending on their situation, they'll go with one portion of SSE and they, and they never bite off the whole thing. They never say, I'm going to go SSE and I'm going to buy SSE today and, and I'm going to deploy it. Right. Um, they, it's always one component of those uh, you know, things that make up SSE. Right. They'll, they'll go with that maybe because there's a gap in their environment. Right. Um, and then from there, they'll kind of expand onto the other solutions. If you were asking me as a consultant which one I should go with, I would say I think that CASB is the um, probably the most important thing right now. Uh, that's because of the fact that, again, a lot of the traditional firewalls of traditional controls were always around secure web gateway. And VPN is still there. It's It's got its security vulnerabilities, security issues, but they're well-defined, well-understood. Um, you know, it's it's important to move away from a VPN technology in the future towards something zero trust network access oriented, but you know, that it works today. It's, it's you know, it can be slow, it can be non-performing, that sort of thing, but it does work, right? Um, but what where people have gaps right now is in CASB, is in cloud visibility and cloud control, right? From a SaaS perspective, from a public cloud perspective, what people are doing um, before a Casby solution, what they were doing is they were building the controls in their public cloud environments, in their SaaS environments. And that doesn't really scale, because if you think about it, if you look at how many cloud applications are being used by a particular enterprise, it's gonna be in the thousands usually. Um, it's, it's contrary to what people think. Uh, we talked a lot of, you know, I talked to a lot of customers and I asked them how many cloud applications they run. They get, they say, you know, somewhere around 200 to 300 and then when they actually uh, you know, start to test out a SSC solution, they realize it's like 10X that, right? And then they're like, wow, like there's all these applications they didn't even realize um, were in their environment that were being used by different business units within the organization. So um, being able to have a, like a, a unified uh, uh, solution that can see all of that communication between all of your users and all their cloud applications and then control it in one place. That's really important because when you realize you have thousands of applications, you can't just go to each cloud application and say, I'm going to control it this way. I'm going to control it that way. It just doesn't scale. You don't have the resources for it.
0: No, I mean, I, I, what I would love is a place that people could start would be the visibility element. That's what I would love because that, and I was thinking about this when I was on a plane the other day that we also see, and and I talk a lot about when people have implemented SSE, they're like, Oh, we didn't know this was happening. And and it would certainly help you know where to start if you had the visibility that you gain from implementation before. And I know that's a bit of a magic wand, and we can't do that. Um, but even if you look at ZTNA, you're like a lot of people don't realize what their remote users are accessing. They don't realize yeah. what websites they might be going to, they don't realize what cloud stuff they're going to. Be- because, as we've talked about on this, when you were on-prem, you had that visibility. Your users moved, you lost the visibility, and suddenly you're like, you think this is what's going on, but you don't necessarily know. And you can base it on what was happening historically, but you know that's not going to be true because the users aren't there anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, John, I I think it's worthwhile asking. I think you've taken skills that you've learned in, in the firewall industry what skills that you've learned have helped you with SSE? And what would you advise to people that want to enter the, the arena today?
1: Yeah, I would say the skills that I learned working with firewalls, how that's helped me is a lot of again, the you know, the controls that have been moved away from uh the firewall into the cloud and an SSE solution, right? So I was very familiar uh before even knowing what SSE was or working for a company that sells SSE. Um I was very familiar with what URL filtering was. I was very familiar with um, uh, web access. Um, so that concept was very clearly translatable, right? Going from you know URL filtering on a firewall to a secure web gateway solution in an SSE platform. So that part was like, okay, great. I can take that away from the firewall and move that into the cloud. That, that makes sense. Um, the zero trust network access point uh, piece uh, at first, I didn't really understand what that was. And actually, a lot of people don't still, because um, because of how different it is from a VPN architecture, uh, people are used to the VPN world, hey, I've got a, you know, I've got to build this VPN uh, concentrator on my firewall, I've got to allow traffic inside uh, from you know, to form that VPN connection, all the sort of thing, right? And then ZTNA sort of flips that around completely. And it's, and it's a, uh, you know, more of an outbound connection. And but just understanding those um, those security benefits, uh, I think is is really important from a ZTNA perspective being able to understand like, um, you know, a lot of the breaches nowadays, right? Have been around VPN, uh credential theft and VPN, you know, a- authenticated users basically that are being operated by a, like a ransomware operator or some sort of adversary, right? They're VPNing into a network and they're getting a lot of access that they shouldn't be getting, right? So ZTNA was, if you explain to me what ZTNA was, that it's, uh, you know, least privileged access essentially to data center applications, but then also in a way where I don't have to punch holes inside of my data center, inside of my network in order to facilitate that access, I would be all ears because from my perspective, I, I you know, I I even ran a firewall here at my house for a VPN and and I had trouble sleeping at night knowing that that VPN appliance was always under attack by people on the Internet. Right. So, um
0: I think the good thing is, as well as it gives you that visibility back as we've, we've talked about before, right, you get to see what people are doing, what they're connecting to why they're connecting. I mean, I, I, I've i implemented SSE solutions. And I I certainly the, the thing that frightened me the most was it gave me visibility into cleanup that should have happened, like we we would have users it would have started in one area of the business and moved into another area of the business but nobody had cleaned up their like active directory access or their access to file servers or whatever it may be so and and we also found that there were products running on people's machines that were calling out to access systems that had long gone and all this stuff that we just didn't know with a vpn and 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 therefore if somebody does get compromised you are you, not going to know right you can't see i mean yes we still have tools on prem that if they actually get on prem you might see some stuff going on i'm not going to say that's not true but you couldn't you couldn't see that to and from and that and that that worried me
1: absolutely i actually think that's a good point right the technical debt aspect um when we have these traditional solutions that have been you know migrated from one hardware appliance to another hardware appliance to another hardware appliance uh, when the technology inherently hasn't changed, right? VPN has been around for, I don't know how long, 20, 30 years, something like that. Um, it would be, it's very easy to think like, hey, I can just migrate my policies over, right? I'll migrate them over to this new appliance and then turn on the new appliance get the VPN working. And it's like, hey, it's all set. But what you're doing is you're carrying over a lot of mistakes, a lot of human error, a lot of overly permissive policies, a lot of um, you know things like that into this new solution. And when you do that, you are not getting that visibility and that control that you need in this day and age, right? So I like I do like to position ZTNA as a as a as a fresh start of sorts, right? Because you can then, you know, you have your VPN today, as you start to migrate to a ZTNA solution. You don't have to, it's not, and that's the other thing I tell people, right? It's, it's not a, a big bang switch, right? Because that's scary. Um, VPN's been around for how long you're gonna. You know, you can't just turn off the VPN one day and turn on ZTNA and you're all set, right? It's a phased approach that you need to take. But what you can do is you can, you know, look at your environment today in 2023 and go, okay, these are the things I need to allow access to. Are my users able to do their job and access the right resources? Great. I don't need all this other VPN stuff that's been from 20 years ago that's calling out the systems that aren't even online anymore, right? I don't need that anymore. Um, so then they can start to kind of really just have a well-defined uh, policy set of systems that they actually need to access and then the rest of it can kind of you know go off into the sunset
0: i think a lot of the tools that we're implementing today a lot of this talk of zero trust and a lot of the technologies that exist is it is forcing us to do that cleanup that we historically and i'll say we because i was involved in it that we didn't necessarily do because IT has always been about making it easy for the users to access things and simple for us to support. And zero trust changes that, and therefore is is really is a most people move house for, house for instance and just pack up loads of boxes, move house, n- never unpack the boxes, and then they'll move house again and they'll take the same boxes they've never unpacked and move them again. And it it now's the time to kind of. Sit down and go. We need to tidy up, and I know John, you're you're a believer in that as well. So,
2: yeah, I may be a believer in it, but do I practice it? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Question: One of the things you didn't you didn't uh, call out, and I I I think it was just uh, an item: um, networking. So, uh, you know, we both kind of got our starts and our excitement around networking. You know, we saw the diagrams on the on the whiteboard, and that you know everything kind of clicked. Um, but being a firewall engineer also means that you have strong networking background. Mm-hmm. Now, in the SSC space, there are some vendors that say, you know, networking is is just going to be a cafe. That's going to be you don't need to worry about networking. It's all going to take care of itself. Internet's going to take care of everything. Um, but I'm curious to get your point of view on that. Uh, because I see it as networking still needs to continue. Uh, there's a lot of complexity involved with moving packets. Um, it has a future. Uh, but, uh, you know, what would you say to that security engineer that, um, you know, is looking at SSE and they're hearing the message like, oh, everything's just going to be a cafe. We're just going to, you know, route default route out to the Internet. Uh, you, inter- network guy, you need to just uh, go find something else
1: to do no yeah that's i I think that the role uh is changing um you know of of a network person i I don't think it's going away um at least not anytime soon i think that what you're starting to see with some uh people who have who have overly embraced the cloud is the cost associated with that and then uh you know a pullback, back right back into the data center for a lot of systems so there i think there's use cases for cloud usage and there's use cases for on-prem and as long as you have an on-prem environment, you need to be able to protect that just like you can protect uh, your cloud solutions with an SSE type of platform, right? So um, I think the firewall is still very much alive. Um, I think that the need for segmentation and, and control within the data center is still you know, really important. If for some reason a system gets compromised inside the data center, I really don't want uh, that data center system to be able to communicate with every other system in the data center and start to you know exfiltrate really sensitive data um, to a, a internet connected data center a server or something like that right so there's still that that security risk security challenge there and and as long as that still exists then you need a a firewall or some sort of control um in order to protect that and as long as that exists then you have you know you always need the plumbing and the networking associated with making sure that uh the data center systems uh, are getting that security control and security inspection but also uh in a performant way right where you're not slowing down the data center from from processing as, as the as fast as it needs to right so yeah fully totally agree
2: so as you kind of look at um the skills you need and we, we've covered a number of them. Transitioning from firewall to SSE. Um, but what we really haven't talked about are what from an engineering perspective, what are the key skills you need to have to be successful uh, in the SSE space?
1: Um, I think that understanding how networks work is really important for, for me. I think I, you know, I, I work with a lot of uh a lot of peers in uh in my organization who come from a lot of different walks of life right they come from maybe the dlp space or they come from the endpoint security space or just different areas and uh they struggle in a lot of places because when we're looking at ssc sse is really a network security solution if you think about it right it's if i am a user and i've got my laptop open and i'm connecting to a cloud application um this SSE solution would be decrypting traffic, it's analyzing traffic, it's preventing it in line, it's facilitating that access as well. So it's doing all these things, much like a network engineer would facilitate access to the internet from a data center, right? It's just abstracted into the cloud, right? So um, understanding how networks work it is really translates well into SSE because you still you know, you still have a lot of those uh, types of things to consider, right? Uh, performance related to network issues, um, decryption, again, mentioning that, right? Certificate management, all that stuff that we had to do on-prem for doing decryption, we still have to do that. It's just now uh, in the cloud, right? So uh, taking that knowledge of networking and kind of uh, firewalling and, and having that in, you know, SSE, it, it is very useful for me personally. Um, I do have to help a lot of my peers who don't come from that background.
2: How about identity? We we haven't talked a little bit about identity because that's a major component of SSE. And it all starts, you know. We all say it all starts with identity. What uh, what recommendations would you have to to a, a security engineer that you know, probably comes from more of that traditional background? How yep. do they get up to speed on identity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, identity is is critical, right? Because uh, if you're trying to adopt a zero trust initiative or zero trust um, kind of methodology, right? And a zero trust is not a product. I know we talk about ZTNA. ZTNA is a product. It's zero trust network access, which is different from zero trust, right? Zero trust is a as a methodology, right, of defining the least privileged least privileged access. So, understanding who, what, where, when, and why, whenever defining a policy for access is really important. There, so identity is where that starts with the who, right? Um, when, you know, network engineers before, and myself, I'm in- included in this, I'm sure you, you both are too, right? Is we would build policies around IP address. We would say this IP 10 dot, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever can access these systems, right? And we thought that that was an identifier that was, you know, trustworthy and meaningful. And what we're realizing nowadays with the sophistication of attacking tools and spoofing addresses and things like that, that that really isn't um, good enough anymore, right? So um, being able to define uh, who and, and having identity and everything that you do is, is critical nowadays um, because the IP address is just not a trust, trustworthy identifier.
0: Yeah, I mean, we often have conversations about where should people start, and I mean, maybe that's where they should start, right, with an identity provider of some form or at least get understanding identity. I want to pivot slightly. Um, we've talked a bit about what you need to, to kind of move into SSE. But why would you move into SSE? Why would a firewall engineer or a network engineer, what would be the benefits for them of doing so?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the, kind of touched on a little bit before, but the relevance of a firewall on-prem is diminishing slowly. Um, it's not gonna go away, I don't think anytime soon, but it is, it is diminishing as cloud adoption continues to happen, as cloud costs become cheaper. Uh, I think you'll see more of adoption of that away from the data center. I, I think that companies are not they don't want to manage data centers. It's more of like they need to manage a data center because there's no better way. Um, but you know these companies, whatever industry vertical they're in, they're in the business of of generating revenue related to that industry, right? Not managing data centers, they're not in the business of that. So if they can offload it to a service, um, you know they're going to, right? So I think that that's uh, one thing to consider. And as the cloud adoption continues to to happen, and as users continue to remain off-premise, um, if you see that continuing, I think that you know a, a solution like SSE is going to get looked at at some point. It's going to have to because um, you're going to have. I mean, when I've seen this with tons of customers nowadays, I talk to is is when as they've adopted this remote work strategy they've had performance issues, almost all of them have had performance issues and they've had to do one of two things. They've had to adopt a solution like SSE to maintain that control, or they've had to uh, allow the users to directly access cloud applications, which creates a huge uh, visibility gap because now you can no longer see or protect the user when they're communicating with certain cloud applications, even if it's a cloud application that's owned by some sort of uh, you know adversary, right? So. Um, you know, it's coming, you know, it's just slowly, maybe uh, some, in some situations, it's faster than others. But um, yeah, I, I I can see that trend.
0: Yeah, I, I was at an event, actually, with John a few weeks ago. And and whilst I was sitting having lunch, someone said to me, he didn't see the reason for moving in the SSE direction, because his company had started to enforce hybrid work. And therefore, people were starting to go back into the office. And I said, Okay, but, applications are still in the cloud a lot of things have moved data's move into the cloud and you you, you've just said he said to me hybrid work and i said okay how many people did you have working remotely before and he said none and i said how many people will you have who need to work from home at least one day a month moving forward and he's like everybody will need to do that and i'm like well there you go like are i honestly don't think we're gonna go completely back to where we were we may spend more time in the office than we did and there are pros and cons of that and there's a whole different podcast around that but i don't think and i certainly don't believe that we're just going to go back hundred percent like we did before so the world has made a shift maybe we are going to step back a little bit but for me that's where the power of the technology comes from is being able to protect people that have wherever they are, whether they're in a coffee shop or at home or on the road or in an airplane or wherever it may be. Um, But John, time's ticking away. Um, I guess one more question from you before we get onto the fun stuff.
2: Yeah, I think it was more of a a kind of a summary here. I think, uh, you know, we started off this conversation around firewalls and the role that they played within the enterprise. Uh, And uh, I think the key item, the key takeaway here is for somebody who is a Security engineer, firewall engineer, more traditional uh, in the approach, or maybe their company is, and they're diving into or dipping their toe into the SSE Lake. Um, the key point is uh, what firewalls did is they were in line. They were in line with um, those applications uh, that were reaching out to the Internet uh, or enforcing uh, protections against the threat of the Internet uh, in, in this day of distributed applications, a distributed workforce. Um, that firewall, physical firewall, can no longer be in line, and that's really what SSE does. Is it from a software perspective, uh, cloud deployed um, points of presence uh, globally. It allows you to be in line and not only achieve uh, security, but also speed and performance of applications. So uh, that's the critical piece, and um, that's yeah, you know, that would be my summary here. Is 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 you got to be in line to be secure.
0: Yeah, I mean, 100%. I can't agree enough. Yeah, so, do you, do you want to go? Fun question number one, John.
2: Oh sure, yeah, because I know Dana spends a lot of time in Asia, so um, I'm curious because uh, we'll we'll start with food. Um, what's the what's your favorite meal you've had so far in Asia?
1: Uh, I would say. Um... Okay, yeah, so I was in Simreep, Reap, Cambodia. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Cambodia, in particular, I really like the area out there, um, and I was going to Angkor Wat, and I don't know if you know what Angkor Wat is. It's it's the, I think it's the largest religious temple in the world. It's a, uh, I think, a, a, a originally Hindu Buddhist temple. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so I, when you go over there, so I was there in August of last year and august in cambodia is extremely uh humid and hot think of it like a florida summer um so quite quite humid um so it's pretty uh uh exhausted because i was you know doing a lot of hiking a lot of looking at the temples that day on on the way to anchor Wat. and so we were doing a good amount of that um and there was this uh like little cafe that's kind of at the base of the walkway before you get over to anchor Wat, and they had this um uh kamai so Kamai is the language that they speak in uh, Cambodia. It was this Kamai style like cold noodle soup um, that they had. Mm. Uh, it had like lemongrass. It was um just really like a green kind of broth and it was cooler. And it just like, I don't know if it was the situation or like the time of the day given that how hot it humid it was. Like that was like something that sounded really good, you know, a cold soup, uh, but with uh, noodles in it and fish, it was like almost like a fish like a cold fish curry soup or something like that. Anyway, it was uh, it was the right place, right time. And it just tasted, you know, super good. And, uh, that would probably be my, uh, my favorite, uh, food that I've had aside from that, probably, um, you know, sushi in uh, Tokyo, of course. Right. You know, who, who would like sushi in Tokyo? Um, I'm a big sushi guy. Uh, so when I come out here, when I'm here in the U S eating sushi, it's, it's all good. But when I go over there, it's just like the level of attention and care that they put to, uh, uh, everything that they do, even at the places that are like the smaller places, not the like well established names in Tokyo for like sushi. Um, it's all really good.
2: Yeah, oftentimes it's the small hole in the wall locations and it's just the timing works out. Maybe it's the experience you're in at the, at the moment or just the ambience. Uh, that, that's what makes a, an amazing meal. So Jay, over to you.
0: Oh, you've just thrown Angkor Wat into the conversation. We could have a whole conversation on that. I, I spent five days doing all of those temples. And oh, I guess the question to going to be around Asia because I, I love spending time in Asia as well. And I, I want to ask you, well, I'll ask you two questions. What is your favorite temple in the Angkor Wat area? And the second question mm-hmm. is outside of Cambodia, what would be your favorite place you've ever been within Asia?
1: um i would say as far as the temple goes i forget the name of it and i i uh i feel bad for not remembering it but it's the one that's pretty iconic outside of Inkerwad. it's the one where uh the trees are are rooting over over the actual temple yeah. because it was yeah i forget the name of it i don't know if you remember it's called.
0: yeah it's called taprom
1: yeah yeah it's, the, Prom, it's yeah. the
0: it's the tomb raider one yeah, amazing. yes amazing yeah yeah mm. okay. Fantastic. Yeah, they, they
1: they talk about that a lot over there. Is they, they they tell you, they remind you that this is where the uh, Tomb Raider was filmed. Yeah. I'm very yeah. proud of that, which is really cool. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that's really neat just to see how the tree has adapted to its uh, environment, right, for survival yeah. purposes, right? I mean, these trees are sitting on top of this, you know, massive uh, temple and are... Pulling, you know, these roots are going all the way over the temple into the ground to grab that, uh, that water and that structure and safety, right? For, uh, I just, I just think that's the neatest thing to see, like, Mother Nature kind of doing its thing when it's, uh, not messed with. So, um, favorite place in Asia, uh, would also probably be Japan for me. Um, I, I, I love Japan a lot. Um, if it was a little bit less expensive, I'd probably, uh. Live there, have some sort of residency there, or something like that. Um, I'm a big culture person, so uh, I think that the Japanese culture, as well as the Cambodian culture, um, they're very considerate, they're very respectful, they're very um, kind people, and I just, I just love being uh, around that energy. Right? Is is just a? Uh, uh, it's just, it's just really, it's really nice. And I, I struggle sometimes coming home, back to the U.S., where it's not necessarily that way all the time, right? um, it's, uh, more opportunistic, I would say out here, but, uh, yeah, it out there. And then also just, you know, in, in Tokyo in particular, how well things are structured, right. Um, the trains, you know, how many people are there and how well the, the, uh, the cities ran, given how many people there are. I mean, I think it's the largest population city per capita, I think in the world. Um, and it's, and it doesn't feel that way when you're there uh versus other you know other cities you might go to that are much smaller that they're a little more uh, chaotic
0: i mean i i was very lucky to live in japan for a while so i mean we could talk about japan forever as well but it, it's <laughs> i'm always amazed that it's not a really touristy destination i mean i was there in the early 2000s and there were no western people like you would literally yeah. if you bumped into somebody else on the street you would Say, do you want to do a co- have a coffee because you just saw nobody? Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably changed recently, but I mean, it's a beautiful country. That, like you said, the people are nice. That, that I love the temples. I mean, very different in kind of Angkor Wat are very different in the Chinese style, but but amazing. And I know John, you spent some time in Japan recently. Yeah, um, yeah we could have a whole po- podcast about that. But I mean, I, I want to personally thank you for coming on. This has been an amazing conversation. I think you've dropped some really great insights. Um, I like the journey that you've taken. I like your advice to uh, other engineers that maybe transition or are thinking about transitioning. Um, it's really great to meet you. And, John, any final words from you?
2: No, it's a great conversation. And and uh, I know Dane and I have been talking about... Uh, getting you on and, and having this conversation around how do you transition from uh, more traditional firewall uh, engineer, security engineer to SSC. So thank you for your insights. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, finally, I'm mean, glad we got it uh, together finally. <laughs> I we were- Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give the edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service and also connect with the SSC forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.